Welcome to a Record Roulette mini-episode. My name is Eamon O'Flynn, and I'm one of the hosts of the main show. Since our last mini-episode, we've raised a number of questions over four album discussions and a Christmas special that I'll tackle here. I also have two corrections to issue and a few other notes. First, this didn't really come up during the episode, but it was certainly implied. Were all the early Beach Boys albums super short, and were any of them actually good? So, they released six albums between 1962 and 1964, plus a Christmas album. Each one is 24 to 25 minutes long, except for Shutdown Volume 2, which is a whopping 27 minutes. Were any of them actually good? Well, only one of them got more than three out of five stars on the Rolling Stone uh, album guide. Surfer Girl received four stars. Looking at the albums themselves, the songs you know, Surf and Safari, Surf in USA, Shutdown, etc., were surrounded by what appears to be carbon copies that you've probably never heard. Oddly, some songs appear to be copied on a couple of albums, which is a bit like how Help Me Rhonda was on Beach Boys Today, and a separate version was released on their next full album of original material. Looking at these albums, it also makes me realize that they started with beach songs before making a concerted effort to pivot to car-themed tunes. I don't think I knew that before. Second, was Private Dancer selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Recording Registry? Yes, it was. It was selected in 2020. Crazy that it's not on the Rolling Stone list, eh? Third, does Dolly Parton have an ice cream named after her? Also, is Dolly the sheep, the first cloned animal named for Dolly Parton? Yes, there is a Dolly Parton ice cream. It's not named for her, but it does have the Dolly stamp of approval. It's made by Jenny's Ice Cream, and it's called Strawberry Pretzel Pie. It was selected by Dolly as an ice cream she'd want to be associated with. As for Dolly the Sheep, she was also named after Dolly for a ridiculous reason. You see, the cell used as the donor for cloning Dolly was taken from the mammary gland, and one of the scientists said, Dolly is derived from a mammary gland cell, and we couldn't think of a more impressive pair of glands than Dolly Parton's. Don't hurt yourself with that eye roll. The first correction is about something I said uh, during our Christmas special. I mentioned that there wasn't a Christmas album on the Rolling Stone 500 Wrist albums list. That's not quite right. There's a box set that compiles tracks produced by Phil Spector, and it includes an entirety of an album called A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector. This Christmas album continues to chart regularly, despite the producer being a literal piece of garbage, and and features performances by The Ronettes, The Crystals, and Bob B. Sox, and The Blue Jeans. Most importantly, it also includes several tracks from Darlene Love, including Christmas, Baby Please Come Home, which has since become one of the most beloved Christmas songs of all time. The second correction is regarding something I said about Mariah Carey's Glitter album. I noted that it sounded oddly like the 1980s for something that came out in the early 2000s. This note was based on my own listens and my review of Critical Reception, but it turns out the film Glitter takes place in the 1980s, and this was a choice. So, my mistake. Sorry about that. We also received a long response to our Grateful Dead uh, American Beauty episode that raised a number of important and useful points, not just for our episode about that album, but also our episode on Mariah Carey's The Emancipation of Mimi, which received tons of criticism. I'll read out the full submission from David Leiserbrom. I, I hope I got that right, David. The host of Rock Docs, a podcast about music documentaries, at the end of this episode, after the music. And I'll post it in its entirety on Twitter. But here are a few excerpts. First, he starts off with a great quote from Frank Zappa. If it sounds good to you, it's bitchin'. If it sounds bad to you, it's shitty. Thank you, Mr. Zappa. 
Next, there's a great bit about the challenge of judging any artist or group on the strength of one album. He said, The Dead had a long and varied career, and no one album or show could come close to capturing their career, much like A Hard Day's Night and Abbey Road are as different as can be, and Kind of Blue sounds nothing like Miles Davis's 70s jazz fusion experiments. Picking up one album is sort of like opening to a random chapter in a very long classic novel. You may or may not enjoy the writing style or be intrigued by the bit of the story that you jumped into, but it probably won't mean as much to you if you don't take the time to familiarize yourself with the work as a whole and the context in which it was created. Third, he wrote a bit about the lyrics on American Beauty, saying, Most of the lyrics found on American Beauty were written by Robert Hunter, who was an old friend and musical partner of Jerry Garcia and essentially a non-performing member of the dead. Hunter's lyrics across the dead career conjure up a fantastical image of old-time America populated by dreamers, gamblers, religious seekers, friends of the devil, and traditional folk characters like the Candyman, Nathan's favorite. American Beauty can be listened to as a loosely connected series of stories about the light and dark sides of America, both historical and contemporary. I think we missed this, and I'll explain why in a minute. Last, he closed with, so maybe American Beauty isn't for you, but I suspect that if you spend time listening to more of the Dead's music, particularly the live stuff, and then go back to American Beauty, you may discover nuances that didn't stand out at first. This is all exceptionally reasonable and aligns very strongly with what we heard following our Mariah Carey episode. It also highlights the challenge of record roulette. The concept is that we listen to an album we've never heard before, or at least we aren't intimately familiar with, in order to give first blush opinions of that work in a vacuum. Did we like it? Did we think it was put together well? Do we think the lyrics were well written? Doing this puts us in a position to give our own opinion without being influenced by real music critics or the historical weight of the album or artist. The problem, this setup keeps us ignorant on purpose, and it's easy to see how a casual listener could think we are just ignorant people with bad opinions. When we don't research the lyrics, as David clearly has for American Beauty, it looks like we didn't do the research, which means we're not putting in the work. I also think some of our critics hit the nail on the head about our tone. It was more dismissive than we needed to be. In the future, we'll keep our tone in mind. That said, we're just three dummies listening to music and providing an our unvarnished, off-the-cuff opinion based on our own preferences. We're bound to have bad opinions. We're certainly bound to have opinions that clash with the fan base of the artist we're covering in any given week. That's okay. I bet lots of people don't like the artists I love. Heck, I know I love a lot of albums that have no business being on the Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list. But to David's last point, this has given us the opportunity to broaden our perspectives after the fact. For example, on the advice of some Mariah Carey fans, thank you, Jesse and Mia, I've listened to Butterfly, Daydream, and Caution. And I think they're all very good. I think Butterfly and Caution both have a claim to this list, though I won't speak for Sonia or Nathan. That doesn't make our episodes better, though. We've taken your criticisms to heart, and we intend to make changes to well, that will ensure the tone and quality of our program is consistent. The first such change is that we will switch to a bi-weekly publishing schedule starting after our next full episode. This will provide the opportunity for me to listen to more music surrounding an artist's entry on the list, their back catalog, contemporary music, etc., and ensure that factual accuracies don't make it into published episodes, at least not unchallenged and also gain a greater appreciation for the artist and their work. I won't ask Sonia and Nathan to do this. Their raw opinion is still part of the charm of Record Roulette, and they didn't sign up to do tons of research, but I'll be better positioned to make each episode a learning experience for all involved, as well as just, you know, a fun conversation of three dummies. 
The initial concept for Record Roulette was to judge individual albums, ones we aren't intimately familiar with, on their own merits and through our own lens, with minimal outside influence. It's clear now that our approach can make us appear willfully ignorant, and, well, I'm happy to fix it. You'll hear more changes in the coming weeks, too. We'll find our way. Next week, we're talking about Laura Nero's Eli and the 13th Confession. Don't know who Laura Nero is? Here's a sneak peek from our episode. Inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012. Inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2010. David Geffen considered her to be his best friend. She nearly became the lead singer of Blood, Sweat, and Tears after founder Al Cooper left. As late as 1993, she was being invited to be the musical guest on Saturday Night Live. Her direct influence has been acknowledged by artists like Joni Mitchell, Carole King, Elton John, Alice Cooper, Paul Stanley, Cindy Lauper, and Elvis Costello, which is a crazy collection of people. Paul Schaefer has called t- today's album, this album today, uh, his Desert Island Disc, the, the one album that he would take if he was stuck on a desert island. And this is a direct quote from Joni Mitchell. Lauren Nero, you can lump me in with when talking about women in, in music. She didn't want to be lumped in with any women except for Laura Nero because Laura exerted an influence on me. I looked to her and took some direction from her. On account of, of her, I started playing piano again. Some of the things she did was very fresh. Hers was a hybrid of black pop singers, so Motown singers, and Broadway musicals. And I liked some things also from both of those camps, which is basically like the most glowing review you're probably going to get from Joni Mitchell. So, you know, like that's that's a crazy I stumbled on that. I was like, holy hell, this is, you know, I mean, Joni Mitchell's on this on this list at like number four or something or maybe three. So, you know, it's it's pretty it's pretty incredible. That's all for today. Until the next spin. Goodbye. Hi, I'm David Leiserbrom co-host of Rock Docs, a podcast about music documentaries. You can find us on your favorite podcast player or at Rock Docs Pod on social. I'm a firm believer in the Frank Zappa quote, if it sounds good to you, it's bitchin'. If it sounds bad to you, it's shitty. So I'm not on here to say that you should like an album if you don't like it. The Dead had a long and varied career, and no one album or show could come close to capturing their career, much like A Hard Day's Night and Abbey Road are as different as can be and Kind of Blue sounds nothing like Miles Davis's 70s jazz fusion experiments. Picking up one album is sort of like opening to a random chapter in a very long classic novel. You may or may not enjoy the writing style or be intrigued by the bit of the story that you jumped into, but it probably won't mean as much to you if you don't take the time to familiarize yourself with the work as a whole in the context in which it was created. Nonetheless, if someone wants to explore the dead as recording artists, they have to start somewhere, and I would have them start with American Beauty. The Dead sought to explore the entire scope of American music. Any one show could include bits of folk, blues, bluegrass, R&B, country western, avant-garde composition, free jazz, old-time rock and roll, and more. American Beauty captures them in their country folk Americana phase, which is the closest they came to the broader commercial musical zeitgeist of their time. Your review was right in comparing the sound of the album to contemporaries like The Band and CSN, Of course, they were never going to be as good as Crosby, Stills, and Nash at what they did, and the verse is true as well. Most of the lyrics found on American Beauty were written by Robert Hunter, who was an old friend and musical partner of Jerry Garcia, and essentially a non-performing member of the dead. 
Hunter's lyrics across the dead's career conjure up a fantastical image of old-time America populated by dreamers, gamblers, religious seekers, friends of the devil, and traditional folk characters like the Candyman. American Beauty can be listened to as a loosely connected series of stories about the light and dark sides of America, both, hi both historical and contemporary. These stories are full of lyrical moments that, to me, sound like they must have always been there, rather than something composed to create a record. Hunter, collaborating with Jerry and the rest of the band, used simple language, influenced by nature and American history and legend, to communicate universal experiences and truths. Sometimes when the cuckoo's crying, when the moon is halfway down, sometimes when the night is dying, I take me out and I wander around, from Sugar Magnolia, or Ripple in still water when there is no pebble tossed, nor wind to blow, from Ripple. Or, going home, going home, by the waterside I will rest my bones, listen to the river sing sweet songs to rock my soul. That's from Broke Down Palace. The words may look simple on the page, or may sound obvious when read aloud, but dead fans believe magic is created when they're joined with melodies, most of which were composed by Jerry. Most of the lead vocals on American Beauty were performed by Jerry, and I won't try to convince you to fall in love with his voice. The dead were often guilty of sloppy vocals, but on American Beauty, they put in the work to stack gorgeous multi-part harmonies on tracks like Addicts of My Life and Broke Down Palace. Jerry Garcia was one of the most beautiful, tasteful, and creative of electric guitarists, but American Beauty focuses primarily on acoustic instruments. This was a deliberate turn away from the noisy, psychedelic, experimental sounds found on their first few, poor, poorly selling, albums. Some people might prefer the more electric rock side of the band, and that's fine. The Dead contains multitudes, and no single aspect of their work is likely to appeal to everybody. And of course, there's much more to say about American Beauty. All of the band members make contributions that are significant not just to the album, but the ongoing saga of the Grateful Dead. So maybe American Beauty isn't for you, but I suspect that if you spend some time listening to more of the Dead's music, particularly the live stuff, then go back to American Beauty, you may discover nuances that didn't stand out at first. Thank you. 